Welcome to the Behavior Speak podcast. Now, here's your host, Ben Ryman. Cool. And, uh, Got it. And then and just one, recording. one question. I was just looking at your slides and I noticed you have, uh, oops, do, do, do you go by your maiden name and your married name at the same time? Or what do you, what do you want to be? Who do you want to be today? Right. I have always wanted to go by my maiden name and my married name. So okay. in Terrachote Van Etten, it's a mouthful. So I, have gone to just Van Etten, but um, no, I, I can, think just like I you can said, pronounce that. My... That's an easy one. Okay. Yeah. 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 Although I'm going to talk about that and growing up and all my nicknames. Totally. Awesome. So I'm going to count to three and clap. And that's just going to be a signal that we're to, for aligning the vocal tracks. Uh, and then I'm going to do right. <clears throat> a brief land acknowledgement. And then we'll get right to her. And you know what I mean by that? Sounds good. Good. Perfect. The land acknowledgement? Yeah. Do you guys do those down in, I don't down, know what that is. down in the US of A? I think it's, <laughs> it, it seems to be a, a Canadian thing right now, but I think it's starting to catch on. Anyway, you'll, you'll, it'll, it'll be clear enough in a moment. I'm excited. Uh, yeah. <clears throat> All right. Here we go. One, two, three. All right. Welcome to another episode of the Behavior Speak podcast. As always, I'm your host, Ben Ryman. Today on the podcast, we have uh, Dr. Nissa Interachoid Van Etten. Welcome to the show, Nissa. Thank you. And you got my maiden name right. Bam. I love it. I just want to start by just quickly um, acknowledging that I am producing and hosting this podcast uh, on the stolen lands of the Klaamen, Kalehus, Comox and uh, Homoko First Nations, who were one community, one nation before we settlers came and separated them off into reserves. Um, I live precisely on in in the village of Isam on the island of Sayayin, uh, known by the colonizers as Gillies Bay on Texada Island here in the in northwest British Columbia. Um, and yeah, just grateful to be here uh, on the lands and to continue my learning journey. Today's topic uh, is, is, as the title will, will give away, is all about uh, culturally responsive care. Folks have probably started to see a theme in a lot of the podcasts I've been doing around uh, culture and kind of other sort of DEI related topics that I'm, because this is an area I've been wanting to learn a lot about and what better way than to go to the experts and and uh, hear different experiences and, and, and learn about them. Uh, before we get into that, maybe you can just tell us this uh, kind of how you got into the field uh, of ABA, like your, your your origin story of sorts, and and what eventually kind of led you to um, um, make this your um, uh, not only your uh, a topic you've been presenting on quite a bit, but also the topic of your dissertation. Yeah, that, those are great questions. Um, I. Love talking about my origin. I think I think we all do getting into behavior analysis and kind of what brought us to where we are today. Mm. Uh, so I got into the field in undergrad. I was a nanny in Southern California mm. um, through undergrad at University of California, Irvine. And so I knew at a young age, I loved working with kids. Um, so I was a nanny in an area that, you know, I went in after school, 
in between classes and I helped take care of kids, drive mm. them around, drive them to their sports. And while I loved children, I didn't feel like it was fulfilling. It wasn't mm. driving me. Um, at the time, I was also a psychology major as an undergrad. And there were different opportunities that popped up through UC Irvine. You know, back then it was um, Craigslist and then also mm. the paper. That's how you found your jobs. Mm -hmm. And uh, there are a couple ads to work with children with autism. I didn't know what that was at all. This was in the year 2000, um, but I knew that I was interested. Let me see what that is. Let me go and apply. Uh, so I interviewed with a family with two little boys on the spectrum uh, in their home in Orange County. And I fell in love with not only the two little boys, but the work that we were doing. I was hired on by the family at the time. So I was uh, what they called their tutor. Mm. And they had, uh, there were no, it wasn't a BCBA overseeing the case, but just a master's level individual who understood special education and programming and skill acquisition who kind of drove targets uh, for me to provide in the home setting and in the community. So I started way back when, you know, as a tutor in the home, I had multiple different families during summer when we weren't in school, uh, working with families all around Orange County, driving kids, you know, to the beach, working on going to Disneyland and waiting in line, going to the mall and maintaining appropriate behavior kind of as you're waiting for your French fries. Mm -hmm. um, I knew from those two little boys and that that experience that I really wanted to pursue something in this field. And I learned through that work that it was called applied behavior analysis. Uh, so I applied to the Chicago school at the time and was accepted into their first cohort of um, at their brick and mortar in Chicago. Mm. Uh, but I loved those little boys so much. I deferred my acceptance one year and stayed an additional year um, after graduating. So mm. I worked with them 40 hours a week. Uh, nice. So 20 hours with the older boys and then 20 hours with the younger hmm. spent a lot of time you know just learning that um and, and you'll see that a lot in the theme of my dissertation and then the work that I do today that working with families is very important and making sure that families are invested in the services that we provide that they understand the goals and objectives that we're implementing and truly they understand ABA um, as a lifestyle and not just a treatment of someone coming in for a few hours here and there hmm. um Left that family, went on to graduate school, worked in Chicago and Chicagoland area and worked again in home with another family that hired me uh, under the supervision of Steve Ward and Terry Grimes. Hmm. Steve Ward, um, I think a lot of people know him. He does a number of podcasts, um, really enjoyed my time, learned so much from them as my supervisors, and then uh, got the opportunity to move to California to work with Dr. Partington hmm. at um, his clinic, uh, Behavior Analyst Inc. So I went there in Gosh, I'm trying to remember. I think this is 2005. Uh, worked there in the clinic uh, back then. That's when, right before insurance reform was starting to kind of move through. So uh, then I was more of a consultant in the schools and then also working in the clinic space with families. Mm. Uh, services back then, again, were families that either could afford services. So, right, we have an access to services situation in the early 2000s. Um, and then we've got families who are also, they have access to funding where they're fighting school districts to receive funding to pay for uh, treatment. So that was kind of how I started as a newly certified BCBA. Um, and then insurance reform came through. I knew I needed to leave Dr. Partington and really understand what that meant, what it was working in a three-tiered model, working in an organization where we build insurance for services, um, and then have worked at five different organizations since then. And now I'm at uh, Central Reach, mm. and I'm the manager of assessment and clinical training. So a lot of my role is training clinicians and educators on how to use assessments to, to, mm. to make decisions, um, specifically the ABLES R and the AFLES. We've got some exciting work coming out of there as well. Nice. Right on. 
Uh, and uh, you also have a, uh, you also are one of three hosts on a podcast there, if I'm correct. Yeah. And you and are I, correct. Yes. Yeah, I'm I, on the I, behavioral I, view. The <laughs> behavioral view. Right, 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 right. That's fun. And you recently, and I think, I think I saw a post recently that you had Dr. Parting on there. So that must've been a, a cool sort of catch up interview. Yes, it's fun. We had him on to, you know, talk about his best practice recommendations for collaborating with parents, what he's done over the course of his career, and then his recommendations, uh, very much like the theme here in terms of compassion and understanding family differences, um, what brings a family to services and how we provide it in a very individualized manner to that family, their culture, their cultural constellation, and, and what their needs are. Nice. And I actually just had uh, Dr. Mueller on the podcast. Uh, and so he talked a little bit oh, about, about the AFLs. We were mostly talking about the IBAO, but um, he, he told us, told told me a little bit about his sort of origins with the AFLs and kind of how that uh, informed uh, some of the, the work he's doing now. So really cool. Um, awesome. So what, what led you to kind of focus on um, both compassionate care and kind of culturally responsive care in your dissertation? Why, why'd you choose that direction? That is a great question. So um, in my dissertation, I did um, dedicate it to my grandmother, hmm. Kulia Dechapan. I know we hmm. talked about this just a little bit ago, oh, but yeah. um, she was a nurse and hmm. she was a nurse in Southern California, um, immigrated from Thailand um, hmm. after kind of studying nursing. And one of the things I learned from her, and one of the things I've learned in my studies uh, through, you know, understanding what nurses learn in their studies is that idea of compassionate care, right? And, and we know this from the paper that Dr. Bridget Taylor and colleagues wrote in 2019, that compassionate care is something that anyone working in um, human services, working to help others, we have to understand, we have to conceptualize in a way that it's tangible, that we can identify what are those behaviors that demonstrate compassion. And I think our field as behavior analysis, we're grappling with it for many reasons. Uh, one, we don't learn about emotions in our coursework, right? We don't learn how to manage them, how to identify them, how to respond to them. And our, our patients, our clients and their families, they're experiencing so many emotions. Mm -hmm. um, so what led me down this path was one, I think it was my origin in working for families directly early on. So I wasn't, you know, working for a funding source such as insurance or school. I truly was working for the family, watching them um, understand what their child could and could not do, right? How What level of independence their child might accomplish over time and watching those emotions kind of play out over the course of the years working in their homes. And then two, um, knowing my, my grandmother's uh, career in nursing and her compassion for her patients really drove me to try and identify how can we bring, you know, what Dr. Taylor and colleagues first wrote about in their paper into our field in a tangible way. Uh, and then I brought in the cultural piece just because my own experience uh, growing up in Southern California as uh, a Thai American really shaped how I view all of the different families that I get to interface with, hmm. all the different cultures that I've been exposed to um, and had to work with. And I thought, you know, there's got to be a way to really teach uh, practicing behavior analysts how to approach families with compassion, and then also um, knowing that we have to understand their culture when they come into our care. Mm, yeah. You brought up a, a, a an interesting point that, you know, we don't talk about emotions in our training. Um, and I know a lot of, you know, sort of 
you know, so-called kind of radical behaviorists, they, they, they apply that mentalism term to this and that, you know, that basically mm -hmm. the, the happy, sad, hurt, angry, whatever, those are mentalistic terms. And as behavior analysts, we can't, you know, mm -hmm. observe, you know, um, the feeling of sadness or the feeling of happiness or the feeling of joy yeah. we can observe you know certain behaviors folks engage in when they're happy or sad um uh and you know more recently certainly uh, with you know the rise in popularity of, of act in, in in for behavior analysts you know there there seems to be more appetite to talk about um uh emotions and sort of the verbal yes. behavior associated with emotions and kind of recognize that I know, I know you don't really know the, we don't really know the answer, but do you think that's, that's a big reason why, mm -hmm. um, um, you know, compassionate care? Because I mean, I, 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 th you know, I think a lot of people wonder, you know, as, as, as a helping profession that we're in, it's, it's quite bizarre that, it, you know, it took till 2019 for us to decide that compassionate care was something we needed to, you know, to do, Important. you know, um, uh, agreed. And, you know, and, and I think we've had a lot of practitioners that probably have been been compassionate. I don't think we're all sort of, you know, you know, exactly um, feelingless sort of folks. And a lot of people use sort of compassion. I mean, they, they wouldn't get the buy in. They wouldn't have, you know, the, the trusting relationships with those families if they weren't being compassionate. Absolutely. But we just haven't really been talking about it. And do you think mentalism is sort of maybe part of the reason why that we kind of have avoided kind of going there? Yeah, I think that I think, you know, if we go back to our training and our um, coursework in our masters, there is the discussion of internal events that yeah. we can't measure them. Um, yeah. However, they do exist and they can account for the behaviors that we engage in. Yeah. But I personally, at least from my experience, I think compassion is coming about one because there are uh, papers coming out in terms of discussing what compassionate behavior analysis looks like. Uh, Roar uh, wrote about this, I think in 2021, mm. or in colleagues um, calling it soft skills, right? Mm. Behavior analysis, finding its heart. Mm -hmm. Well, I think we've always all had a heart. We work mm -hmm. in with very difficult um, clients across different yep. settings and very difficult cases. But I think that as we've moved into the medical model, um, and I know that's another source of debate in some um, circles, yep. but as we're moving towards insurance funded services and we are aligning, um, and with, I call this in my dissertation, the allied health profession. So mm -hmm. nursing and social workers yes. um, and doctors, that medical model means that we are being ca compared to other health professions who have training in compassionate mm -hmm. care. So turning to our counterparts in those fields, um, understanding that they receive training in, um, they call the interpersonal relationships, you mm -hmm. know, soft skills, um, therapeutic relationships. When I did my lit review, I had to kind of one, look into allied health professions and find the five or six synonyms with compassionate care. Mm -hmm. um, because compassionate care isn't also what they call it in those fields, uh, but it is an area of focus. So I think this is coming about one with the notion that a majority of our field is working in a quote unquote medical model Right. We're being funded for our services through large payers um, and insurance organizations. Mm -hmm. um, so we are starting to move towards we have CPT codes that we're billing. We're we're a medical service. We have uh, medical treatment recommendations for our clients. Um, mm -hmm. So in moving in that direction, um, there is now this notion of we have to provide care that's compassionate or, mm -hmm. you know, um, we've got a term for it now. But like you're saying, our colleagues, uh, BCBAs that have been in the field for decades, they're compassionate. They can build rapport. They didn't have mm -hmm. a name to it. It was a part of their their practice. Um, 
And I used to say way back when, when I started way before I was in um, working in autism insurance reform, so right, autism funded services with insurance, uh, we had to sell ourselves for a family to say, you know what, I'm going to hire you as a consultant. I will pay you out of my pocket. Mm. You um, have to prove that you have a skill, right, an expertise in your area, and that we're going to be working on really socially important targets with my child. Mm. Um, so we were selling ourselves. So we had to build rapport and really ensure that we were, you know, having that therapeutic alliance with families. Mm -hmm. It's a different service model now. So I think having a name for it um, with that increase in behavior analysts, the increase in certificates and individuals working in this space, um, having a name for it does help mm -hmm. so that we at least are aware of what we're looking for. Mm. That's interesting. I, I never even sort of considered, you know, this whole medical model thing as being a reason to be compassionate. You know, <laughs> that, that that insurance paying for services is 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 a reason to be compassionate. Um, um, and I, I mean, obviously, it's not the main. And reason. I agree. No, exactly, exactly. I wouldn't say it's the reason that we have to be compassionate. I would say it's more of. Um, when you think about when you go to see your nurse or your right. dentist, right? Um, it's bedside manner. You're mm -hmm. going to go back to that that nurse or that that dentist. And I, you know, have an example with my own daughter where if that bedside manner is uh, one that you immediately trust them and you value their um, how they're handling you or that your children, you're going to go back. And that's very similar to what we're providing as a service now. Mm -hmm. Only reason I, I mention it is because. You know the the sort of the, the, you know CPTs and all these other things that I'll I'll, mm -hmm. I'll never understand um, um, only apply in the U.S. Right? I'm in I'm in Canada, and uh, you're you right. Know, we don't we don't have insurance an insurance mandate here. And in fact, and and if we look at sort of a lot of the countries around the world that are now some of them just really starting mm -hmm. sort of their behavioral analysis um, in, in their, in their nations, you know, none of that exists. And they're all sort of in the, you know, got to sell myself only people that can pay and all those, mm -hmm. all those sorts of things you kind of mentioned. Um, and so again, they have to be that as well. I also think that, you know, and it, and it makes sense that, you know, you're, we're going to be talking about sort of culture a lot today that, you know, the onset of a lot of discussions, I know the Taylor paper was in 2019, but sort of post George Floyd in 2020, there's been, you know, a massive increase yep. in conversation a lot more about both, you know, um, you know, culture in terms of sort of um, 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 well, I know cu culture is across the board as far as communities, but sort of culture in the way of sort of ethnicity and language and whatnot, but mm -hmm. then also neurodiversity um, and, and that sort of culture piece too, you know, have all really been um, getting a lot more play and a lot more papers and a lot more discussion. And so, you know, I, I, I presume, you know, compassionate care, it's really important to consider, you know, all of those pieces. Um, and, and so I think it maybe is, is timely to be having more, compassion conversations because we need to be considering all the, all the above in our interactions. I agree. And I think, you know, there are a number of statistics out there um, in a number of different papers that I, I present on often um, there, uh, the CDC reports in the next about 20 years, we're going to be a majority minority nation, right? Mm. There won't be one large representative group. 
Yes. And I think in knowing that and knowing where, where we've come in the last even just two years since George Floyd and where we are today um, with the neurodiversity movement and behavior analysis, it's it's time for us to mm-hmm. not only speak about this stuff, but to acknowledge um, our awareness of it. Mm-hmm. I think that as practicing clinicians listening in on this call and the ones that I have the honor of working with daily, we are working with um, patients of so many profiles, so many mm-hmm cultural and subcultural groups that they belong to. And when I say culture, it's not just your country of origin or the language you speak, it's mm. the region that you live in, right? Yeah. Um, it is the the groups that you participate in. Um, if you have family that plays sports, you, that's a part of your culture. So those, those groups that you participate in, um, and Skinner said this, those social groups are the groups that reinforce your language and your behavior. So you are shaped by those contingencies. And mm-hmm. I think as behavior analysts, to really understand our clients and what's socially appropriate in terms of targets, we need to understand the entire social construct of their family and that makeup. Mm-hmm. And I think it's time to talk about it. So we're not just treating that child that walks into our home or into a clinic for an evaluation, but we're also trying to understand what role does the family play, right? Are there other um, individuals that make up um, caregiving, like grandparents Mm. and aunts and uncles and cousins, and how much a part of this process are they, um, and should they participate in support treatment? Mm. I think that there's a a big piece of capturing and understanding a family's culture, um, their dynamic, where they participate and belong, uh, and developing objectives and goals according to understanding the entire um, system. Mm. Let's talk a little bit about kind of definitions here. I mean, there's a lot of terms I mean, like um, that have the word culture in it. Um, and so for a lot of years, it was cultural competence, yeah. cultural sensitivity, cultural awareness. Um, uh, more A little more recently with, you know, papers, uh, you know, uh, um, there's been, you know, um, cultural humility. Um, mm-hmm. uh, I, I've been hearing a lot lately, particularly in terms of, um, work with indigenous populations, uh, around cultural safety. Um, mm-hmm. and, and now we're talking about, uh, culturally responsive care. It, it seems yeah. like all of these things are, you know, kind of one in the same. Uh, I think, I think we, I think we need to stop making up phrases. Um, it's, it's starting to get <laughs> a, a little bit confusing um, because, you know, do I have cultural yeah. ability? Do I have cultural competence? Do I have cultural awareness? Am I being culturally responsive? So <clears throat> what, a- um, what does, what does culturally responsive care mean? And, 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 and why, why do we, why do we call it that? That's a great question. Um, I want to go back to the the topic of cultural competence first. And I know sure, that yeah. Patricia Wright, she wrote a paper in yes. 2019, right? And it's a, a fantastic paper in that let us rephrase cultural competence and call it cultural humility. Because one, mm. we're never going to be competent in right. anyone's culture. I'm never, yes. I mean, I could walk into a home and that client could be um, a first generation Thai American, just like myself. But their culture could be completely different because of their social constructs, where they are raised, their family values, their parenting mm-hmm. styles. Mm-hmm. Um, so I would never be competent. I could become humble. Uh, I have a number of stories where I have been humbled and I continue to be humbled in my career by mm. families and colleagues. Um, but in cultural humility, that means we're lifelong learners. We are willing to learn about every 
unique and individual client that we we get to work with, mm. uh, that we will do our best to engage in um, self-assessment of our own biases, right? If, if there's an unconscious bias that might pop up or we're working with a family that we're going to do the work to uncover that bias. Um, I think that cultural humility is a better phrase for where we are as a field mm. currently, mm. right? We're still mm. investigating this new um, the ethics code that was released in January um, regarding, I think it's 1.07, cultural diversity and responsiveness. Uh, what they talk about in this, and one, we know that it's not um, the requirement to have CEUs in cultural responsiveness doesn't come for another three to four years. Mm -hmm. But I think the field, we're starting to begin to consider what does that look like? Where is this training coming from? Who in our field is equipped to train? Mm -hmm. um, and whenever I talk about this, um, and what is cultural responsiveness? It's one, it's identifying that we all have different cultures that we belong to. And the best way to serve our clients ethically is to learn their culture. They're very mm -hmm. specific, specific and unique culture that we're not going to find that in a textbook, right? That it's, it's listening um, without an agenda. It's being compassionate, being empathetic. Uh, it's understanding that sometimes when I walk into a home and meet a family, and I've got, you know, my intake packet that I need my 20 questions answered on, I might not get through one of those because maybe the parents are grieving and they're super emotional about a diagnosis. And my role is going to be just listening and supporting. And mm. I'll come back next time and we'll, and we'll con conduct that intake. Um, cultural responsiveness really is finding ways for us as professionals to learn about our own culture and then teach our colleagues about um, how to manage that in those cultures. Mm. And I mentioned earlier the the humility of it. So um, mm. I will say I, I was in a situation uh, recently. I was a in a clinical director type role, and mm. this was right after George Floyd. Um, and I had a number of uh, BCBAs that I was supporting. So I wasn't their direct supervisor, but I was kind of their support line when they were struggling. Um, and in the South, we had a number of um, African American clients in one region, yeah. and the parents were asking for a statement saying, hey, you know, this happened to George Floyd right down the street from the clinic. And we'd love to know what your organization is doing. You know, how are they going to support our families? Or are mm. they going to come out with a statement on Black Lives Matters? Mm. Um, our clinicians at the time were not prepared to answer these families. So I hopped on a phone call with a mom. Um, and I said, look, I'm, you know, I'm in a different state than you are but I support and oversee this territory. I want to, I want to listen and, and listen to you. I just want to have a conversation to support yeah. you. And this mom said, um, look, what happened to George Floyd? This could be my little black boy. This could be my son who is highly aggressive. He doesn't follow instruction. No one has instructional control and you're sitting in another state trying to help, but you don't know what I'm going through. And mm. you know what? There are six other little boys in this clinic that look like him and they mm. can't communicate. Are you telling me that your team is prepared to help him become compliant and follow instruction? What if, you know, this happens to him in 10 years? Um, and mm. I would say I was very humbled in that mm -hmm. this is a situation I had never been in as a, a supervisor. And here we have parents that are scared. They're scared for their children. And our role is to to explore how can I support this specific family, right? I mm -hmm. am not from the same culture. I, I know my role and my expertise in uh, managing challenging behavior and skill acquisition, but right now in this moment, I need to support this mom in a fear that is a legitimate fear that is playing out in modern day. Um, and those, those are the scenarios I think that 
the more we share as BCBAs, the the experiences that we have with different families. And and again, you know, going back to um, the compassionate care talk and what Bridget Taylor and colleagues wrote in that paper is we need to admit when we're wrong or when we don't have an answer. I think that's the first thing that we learned, or the first thing I learned in working with Dr. Taylor uh, was there are times when as behavior analysts, we don't say, you know what, that didn't work. And I need mm. to figure out what the next intervention might be. Um, so with this mom, I said, I am so sorry that you're, you're struggling with this. And I 100% am here to support you. Let me hop on a team call with your clinicians. Let's figure out, you know, if we need to talk about different objectives for your, your son and how we can accomplish um, this, this is a legitimate fear of yours. And I, I want you to understand that I hear you hmm. uh, and sharing that I, I will do whatever it takes to help that family. Awesome. Um, kind of related to that. So kind of tossing around these thoughts in my head for quite a while, long before when I were going to have this conversation around. Well, first off, I think it's, it's sort of the, the the whole bias thing and kind of recognizing your own biases. And, and that seems to be sort of the, you know, central sort of tenet of all of this stuff. You know, I mean, it, it doesn't matter. It, it, it doesn't matter if you're, you know, racist or classist or sexist or ableist and, and, oh, yeah. and any ism in the world is is basically a result of bias um um you know i, I have and, and i have so much bias uh, uh, that i'm learning about every day um, yeah you know and that's all a product of our learning histories and our culture and growing up mm -hmm. and media and everything um um and you know, and in, 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 you know, to, to I, I I like things simple when it comes to sort of action items. And so, you know, for me, recognizing sitting and recognizing my own bias and in every situation before mm -hmm. I get into it, which I'm not very good at yet, but that's sort of the goal is to before I get into a situation, think about all of the the judgments I'm about to make and the biases I'm about to have, and whether they're racist or sexist mm -hmm. or able, it doesn't matter in that moment. Um, they're, you know, they're, they're all, they're all potentially um, problematic. Uh, and, but that said, mm -hmm. I think it does help to have, I'm curious about your thoughts on this. Do you think it helps to still, to have some sort of, you know, basic general knowledge of sort of, you know, cultural issues in, in, in different groups. So for example, you know, I, th I think it's, I, I think it, it's, it's finally gotten out to the world that um, the p black, black people's interactions with police um, can be very scary and very dangerous. And, and, and it's, yes. a re it's a realistic fear of death every time they have those interactions. Um, and so I think knowing that, you know, in advance can help in my interactions with a family, um, and what they're working on. Obviously, I'm not going to impose that's going to be an objective or anything, but, you know, it, it may yes. change, it may change the questions I have or the conversation I have. So I guess the question is, is there's sort of cultural responsiveness where you're kind of coming to a new family, asking lots of questions, um, um, uh, to sort of, you mm -hmm. know, um, open-ended, exactly. But at the same time, is there a value in having some cultural competence 
before you go in. Um, obviously, you're not going to generalize, like just like you said in the beginning. Every, every Thai, you know, a Thai American family is different from the the next Thai American family, and so on and so forth. Obviously, there's a lot of differences there. But would it be helpful for me to have some basic understanding of some of the common, maybe cultural norms of say uh, uh, of uh, uh, of Thailand? Are you a BCBA supervisor looking to streamline your practice? Or maybe you're working towards your BCBA and need to find the right supervisor. Homehouse offers tools that make supervision so much more enjoyable for both supervisor and supervisee. For supervisors, they offer easy meeting documentation, competency tracking, monthly verification forms, a built-in supervision curriculum, and so much more. For supervisees, Homehouse has a fieldwork tracker with built-in auditing, monthly verification forms, a curriculum, quizzes, and more. If you're looking for a supervisor, they even have a supervision marketplace where you can connect with BCBAs until you find your perfect match. Kind of like professional dating. For more information, go to whomhouse.com forward slash speak or search whomhouse on Google. If you're planning on collecting continuing education credits for this episode, you'll need to enter the three secret words at www.cbiconsultants.com forward slash shop. The first secret word is contextual that's a great question i think that um and this kind of relates to that that you know ethics code of culturally responsive care and that we can do the work we can try and find the literature or um you know i wouldn't go talking to my friends that were of that same group because it's going to be a very different experience but uh there's a text i'm actually looking on my bookshelf by uh, mm. connors and capel it's multiculturalism mm. and diversity and they actually have chapters for very many different groups. So they've got an entire chapter on how to work with Asian American families, mm. how to work with African American families. There's um, one on indigenous families. Mm. Now, this is a great text in that it'll lay a little bit of a foundation in some questions you might want to capture in the intake process or when you're working with these types of families. But I think that we also need to be aware that we can't going in. We can't be going in with these preconceived notions because, again, we're bringing our bias in. Mm -hmm. If I go in assuming every um, Asian family I work with is going to be English as a second language, I'm making assumptions that are going to harm my ability to be a an effective practitioner when mm -hmm. I work with that family. Um, I like to train. I do a lot of training of clinicians in how to conduct an intake meeting, um, how to administer assessments. I like to train with a go in completely open minded to um, and having the time to conduct a history assessment of that family. What brought mm. you here? What preconceived notions do you have about um, ABA? Because mm. some families will have preconceived notions. They're also going to have a bias in mm -hmm. meeting us, mm. right? Um, Bailey and Birch in 2010, when they wrote that book, um, 25 uh, Essential Skills for Practicing Behavior Analysts, yeah. they said the most important meeting is that first meeting you have with a family. And I think that's 100% true. Uh, and, and that's your representation for the field to this family. So I think for us going in completely, almost like a blank slate, I'm mm -hmm. here to learn about you. I have some questions I need to gather to inform my, you know, my assessment. If I'm billing, I've got certain 97151 mm -hmm. codes and units I have, mm -hmm. but really I can't serve you until I learn as much as I can about you. Um, and one of the things they recommend in, I know Fong and Tanaka's uh, paper, as well as Matsumi um, in their papers is truly understanding um, not only that family's cultural background, but how does that family value healthcare, 
right? Especially mm. if you're working in the United States under insurance reform. Right. Um, how does that family respect those healthcare providers? Do they expect when they go in, right, you go into your oncologist, you're expecting their expertise and you're going to follow that treatment protocol to a T. Um, how do they value healthcare? Do they maintain their appointments? That, those are questions you could ask. You know, what are some other um, service professionals your child is working with? What is the frequency of engagement? Do you go to all of those appointments? Um, that will allow you to determine how they feel about your recommendations when you do make them. Mm. So I think going into each family, you know, I think coming in with a bias is going to be a little bit harmful. Um, I think that there is some work that can be done in, um, you know, looking at literature that's out there about a, a group, mm -hmm. just to kind of be prepared to know that I've heard this is hard. I personally am not of this background, but I've seen people struggle with this um, or I've heard that. However, how's your family doing? Mm -hmm. um, you know, what are some barriers for you? I think that's a better approach than going in um, already informing your own bias, so to speak. Yeah, I really like the uh, this the, the question you said about asking them kind of what their perceptions of ABA and whatnot are um right from the yeah. get-go because especially this day and age where you know uh you know i think our field is going through a lot of um, um changes and conversations around you know um uh, a lot of the stuff in our past uh as well as you know you know how some of that stuff from our past has still has carried over to the present um and and you know and there's you know and there, you know there's a there's definitely a, a a valid concern from a, a lot of practitioners that um you know families are have are maybe having you know a different opinion of ABA than they might have had in the past um and mm -hmm. whether that's and whether that's you know misinformed or not um you know you know uh, mm -hmm. they, they may already like you said have these biases the, the moment the moment they hear someone in ABA is coming over to their house. And so I love the idea of yeah. checking in with them and seeing what their feelings are and maybe having that honest conversation early on. Yeah, I, I think it's smart. And I think that's, you know, again, I refer to this text often, but Bailey and Birch say that um, at that onset of services, families should know what to expect from you and what to expect from your services. But they also need to understand and I used this example recently and I gave this talk um, at the University of Washington. But when my daughter goes in for dental work, right, and yeah. she's got her mouth full of like cotton and all that, she can't speak. The dentist will say, hey, if this hurts, raise your right hand. If this is uncomfortable in any way, raise your right hand. Mm. Um, our families need to understand they can raise the right hand at any time and they need mm. to understand what that looks like. I'm going to raise my right hand. I'm not comfortable with my therapist, with the intervention. I didn't agree to that treatment. What are the steps I follow now? Do I contact your supervisor? Do we have a conversation? You know, I think that um, as, uh, again, as practicing behavior analysts who are working in a very um, seemingly medical model, everyone needs an out. And they need to know from that first meeting what the expectation is and that this isn't a lifetime of a commitment. Um, and they need to be able to raise their right hand if they're feeling any discomfort in the interventions that we're applying. Totally. I love that. Um, well, let's talk, talk a little bit about kind of assessment, um, uh, because I know you talk a lot about sort of um, uh, doing, you know, essentially a kind of a, a culturally kind of informed assessment practice. Um, yep. So 
kind of a kind of a two-part question because I feel like sometimes we we confuse what the word assessment means. Um, mm-hmm. Sometimes we think assessment means using these, you know, sort of curriculum-based, you know, um, um, questionnaires or or you know maybe a, like an open-ended functional assessment from you know mm-hmm. uh, Land or whatever um, that um, you know as being that's what assessments are um, and so and wh- where I, where I know assessments are really just asking questions and and um, trying to get a picture of kind of what's going on and what's needed and and so on and so forth so kind of a kind of a two-part question maybe here. Um, and this could take up the rest of the interview, um, but uh, <laughs> one being kind of, you know, how do we, what's it mean to have sort of a, a culturally formed assessment? What's it, what, what kinds of skills and types of questions should we be asking? And, and what, what does that look like? Yeah. But then also, and I can ask this again, if, uh, if, uh, if it takes a while to get there. If I forget. Um, yeah. <laughs> is, is sort of, how do we, how do we use already created assessments. So you mentioned, you know, like ABLES and AFLES and those sorts of things. Um, um, and and administer, administer them from that sort of culturally um, mm. responsive yeah. perspective, because we know, I know that, I, I know I've heard from some folks that some of those assessments are a bit dated in terms of, uh, you know, considering mm-hmm. some of these cultural pieces. Great questions. Um, and yes, we could go, I could go on forever. Mm. I feel like this is a, a lot of where I am currently in my career, mm. um, which, and I, I always want to say when I look back on my career, I've been doing this since I was in my late teens. Um, I, I feel honored that I'm in a, a different role now. You know, I, I get to work with behavior analysts and train them daily mm. and special educators. And it's such a fun place to be, to help mm. shape how they administer, administer assessments. Um, mm. So to your first question about how we bring in cultural components into the assessment process, uh, I reference often uh, Tanaka Matsumi and Higginbotham paper from 1996. Yes. It's the culturally informed functional assessment. It's an old paper, right? It's been around for a couple decades. Um, I love it. I review it for a lot of, uh, I have a colleague who calls, when you read a lot of information, you pull out the gems. I review it for gems. There are a lot of Mm. gems in it that contribute to how I view the assessment process. Um, and a couple things that really stand out to me is one, right, we need to, and we've talked about this a bit, we need to do an entire um, analysis or assessment of the family's cultural variables, meaning, and, and then we can go to even um, big lens on, you know, uh, contextualism here in that mm-hmm. we need to understand how the family views society, their role in society, and then their child, their, that client's role in the family in society. So we can look at that family from those views. And if we embed those questions in our in our intake, right, that's going to help us gather that information um, and saying, OK, I'm not here to serve this small function of just this, you know, these 40 hours a week for your child to meet these goals. I'm here to serve your entire family. Um, and in saying this, and I'm going to kind of go off topic and try and come back to on topic, but. In saying this, uh, one of the other things that I train heavily on is as practicing behavior analysts, when we meet with our parents, yes, we cover the treatment plan and the goals of the short term um, and long term, uh, but we also have difficult conversations. And those difficult conversations include your child is currently four. Um, Where do you want your child to be at 15? 
And then again at 18. And, and oftentimes I met with, at least in my experience has been, I'm not ready. You know, we're not thinking that far ahead because they're four. Mm-hmm. Um, but as, as clinicians and practitioners, we need to think I'm setting up this plan and I'm looking at what are the objectives to increase your um, child's independence, right? Mm-hmm. My all, and I know we talk about optimal outcomes as a field. That's a huge topic right now. I think we're all trying to crack the code. What is an optimal outcome for mm-hmm. a client that we're serving? Um, we all have different perspectives. Is that, you know, um, is that decreasing hours, least restrictive environments? I personally, from uh, literature and different uh, special interest groups I've met with, I think it's increasing the individual's um, independence, right? Their access to reinforcers, their access to their environment without supports. But the other one that is really um, hit heavy for me is increasing that individual's ability to advocate for themselves. Their ability to, whether that be join the IEP and say, hey, I don't need this support because I've had a couple of clients who come to the IEPs and they say they're so happy to see their whole team, but they're very much like, why are you all talking about me? I'm doing fine. Mm-hmm. Um, but also increasing that individual's ability to say and, and to, to assent, right? We know that's also a topic we're talking about heavily. Uh, you know, our ultimate goal is that we get to determine what interventions happen to us um, because we are, um, you know, we have our ableism and that is the ultimate goal for our client is they, we want them to assent to the interventions or the lack of interventions in their life. Mm -hmm. So I think an optimal outcome for me with the clients I serve is I want to build that independence for you. Um, And in doing so, I need to look at your treatment from a contextualistic view. So I need to know where you fall within your family, how your family views society and where they fall within. Again, when I say society, not the world at large, but their their social groups that they operate in. Mm -hmm. And how can I help you become independent in those groups? and I know I went a bit off topic, but I think how we incorporate that into intake and then in intervention is one, um, and this is a question that came up in an assessment course I taught, um, we need to have those cultural questions included in every client's intake, not mm. just the intakes where that client is a different background from myself, because uh, there are some times when, you know, I've had a BCBA say, I'm not comfortable asking these questions because then it shows the family that I noticed that we're different. Mm-hmm. Well, then don't ask those questions. Make it a part of the organization's intake packet, mm-hmm. right? It's the question that every family asks, answers, whether they match their clinician or not. Every family should say, what languages do you speak? Mm-hmm. Do you need a translator? Um, what mm-hmm. social groups do you belong to? You know, even regionally, yes. I think those questionnaires should be included. So then everyone has that same access to reporting. Yes. What makes them unique? Yes. I think that's really important because also, you know, uh, this is also bias. There's there's this assumption that you're only different if you look different. Mm -hmm. Right. That's right. And, you know, and I think, right. Yeah. I mean, something, you know, we're we're seeing a lot here as, as I learn more about sort of, you know, indigenous groups uh, locally and, and and trying to sort of you know build build my my understanding there you know there's a whole large group of uh of indigenous folks um um i think primarily in in uh you know in kind of what we call central canada called the, the metis and the metis mm-hmm. peoples are are and there's there, there there's a whole call they're, they're they're from an area i think called the it's not six flags i know that's the 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 
the, the amusement park up, but the six, oh, sorry, Treaty Six, that's what it is. I knew there was a six in it, the okay. Treaty Six territories. Um, and, uh, and they're from that particular area. Um, and, uh, and there's a whole lot of ceremony and, and sort of, you know, culture associated. Um, but a lot of them present as if they're Caucasian. Uh, because of some of mm-hmm. the some of the, uh, the the mixed race marriages that happened sort of early in, the, in the early in like the sort of 1600s to the sort of the 1900s and whatnot um and um and there's you know I, I'll, I'll i'll put a couple links in the show notes for folks to learn more about the metis peoples because we that's not sort of the focus today but point being is 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 you could easily walk in and see and see someone from a with, with metis heritage and make a lot of inaccurate assumptions um you know that they're essentially white, white identifying cisgendered folks and so on and so forth um mm-hmm. and so that's just a long-winded way of saying i, I love that you know we're going to ask that question to everybody because you just you just don't know exactly you don't know and i think that that's again when we go back to that cultural responsiveness it's um i think organizations and as our field is moving there we need to ask everybody because we need to assume right? And not having assumptions. We need to assume we need to learn everything about everyone. We are not going to have your, you know, and I'll I'll share an example, Mm -hmm. um, but we need to basically take on the responsibility of capturing information for everyone for a better, for lack of a better word. Mm -hmm. Um, But my, uh, my married name is Van Etten Mm. and um, it's very much a Dutch name, right? Just in hearing it, it's Dutch. And I live uh, here in Austin, Texas. And a lot of times um, when I schedule appointments for myself and my children, you know, it's Miss Van Etten. We're going to be coming in. I've had four scenarios where I walk in and the first thing those um, receptionists or whoever it is we're meeting say is, oh, wow, you're not a Van Etten. Without even realizing how um, disrespectful wow. and biased that is. 100%. And, and I mean, there the first couple of times, you know, when we moved here, I would just smile and say, no, that's my married name. But now, and, and this is maybe me being a little more feisty, I've mm. come back and said, what does a Van Etten look like? Mm-hmm. I don't understand. Mm-hmm. Um, because I've also used my my maiden name and they can't say it, right? They, I've heard artichoke and terracheat oh. or I'm sorry, I can't say this. Can you spell it? Mm. Um, so I think, you know, for, for those of us that um, might have names that are difficult to pronounce or we come from a different background and culture than, you know, the majority of the population where we're um, living or we've grown up, it, it is, um, those assumptions are painful. Mm-hmm. They're painful and they, um, they help, uh, they've helped me at least shape how I interact with families of different backgrounds, mm-hmm. how, how I approach the treatment, because I never want um, to make them feel the way that I feel when people make those statements towards mm-hmm. me. And, mm-hmm. you know, um, I'm raising um, mixed children and they lived in Hawaii for uh, a couple of years and now they're mm. here in Austin, Texas. And for them, it's been a difficult transition because in Hawaii, they we were a major- majority. The majority of the population is, um, you know, Hapa or half Asian um, yeah. background and heritage. And, uh, you know, that's that was a unique experience for them. And now um, being here in Austin, we're, we're very much a minority and, mm. um, you know, we we we've lived through a number of different um, experiences here after seven years where they they questioned if they belonged here. They questioned, you know, is it like we don't see other kids like us? Um, it's shifting a bit. There's some other families moving in, but mm. it was a difficult time for them. And I, I think that, again, working in the helping industry, 
we need to learn um, through podcasts like this, through talking to colleagues, through talking, talking to friends that everyone experiences life differently. And the color of the skin or um, the name that's on the, you know, your certificate is not going to shape who you are. It's your lived mm-hmm. experience. Mm-hmm. Um, and the only way we can capture that information is by, you know, uh, compassionate care, interviews, conversations, listening um, versus making those assumptions. Hmm. Going to kind of the part B of that question was sort of how do we then kind of culturally adapt some of these assessments protocols and things that are out yeah. there because they're 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 very some of them are you know they're, they're pretty rigid you know um and they're they're, they're supposed <laughs> to be because they're objective you know they're well you know does does you know Billy do A B or C um you know but often A B or mm-hmm. C is um is is culturally specific to to, to white Correct. families or whatnot, you know? Yep. And so, you know, yep. the, I think the classic example that I've, I've heard on several podcasts now, the interviews that I've done, um, is the um, um, eating with a fork uh, or eating with mm-hmm. utensils. And that there's quite a few <laughs> cultures that, you know, that don't use utensils. Um, and that's that's the regular way everyone in the family and everyone in, in that culture group eats. And we're going in and seeing you know, what we, what we, you know, um, uh, judge to be messy eating or, you know, poor manners mm-hmm. or whatever term you want to apply to that. And, and, and right away, we're starting to teach these skills. And I think one example that I heard recently was with that sort of context was, was, you know, obviously, if you're going into a family, and you're talking and, and you're saying, well, I, I think we should teach them to use the knife and fork and the family, you know, right away is like, no, 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 that, 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 you know, you can nip that early. But often what happens yeah. is mm-hmm. these kids are in other settings like schools. And so the school starts for, you know, in, in, in insisting they use a knife and fork, you know, and then they come home and, you know, and there's generalization problems and, and it actually just creates more of a mess than there was originally. So, yep. Yeah. So, so how do we take, you know, as you know, these these assessments that, you know, maybe are going to change down the road uh, and probably should in some way um, um, and, 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 and administer them while being, you know, um, culturally humble and sensitive. And sensitive yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's a, a great question. Um, a couple of things, you know, and depending on when this airs, um, we'll have some updates here at Central Reach, but we um we're currently working hard to to move in the direction of we're working to combine the ABLES R and the AFLES assessments. Mm. So this will likely come out after that goes to market, but that's mm. a big push that we have here. Um, in that one, we know that when we look at assessments, right? One, the definition of assessment, and I'm not going to give you the, the dictionary definition, but yeah. truly just an assessment is capturing um, a snapshot of that individual's ability at that moment of administration, right? Mm. So perhaps that individual knows so much more than what you captured, but you've got your assessment in front of you, you've got the time Mm. to spend with them, and you're gathering data, observing, um, capturing using face-to-face interactions, um, informed, you know, questionnaires, as well as interviews. That assessment is your ability to determine what to work on next. What skills does that client have versus what do they not have? And then where do you begin intervention or treatment? I think um, as we get ready to kind of move in the direction, at least from my role here at Central Reach, to combine the assessments, we're also looking to update the assessments. I think, you know, modernizing, making sure that we're aware of where we are currently in space and time, 
that we have um, clients that aren't going to identify to one or two genders, right? Male or female um, are in a lot of these assessments, mm -hmm. but that needs to be shifted as well. So that is something that we've talked about as a team. Um, but in what we have currently, so let's think about all of the assessments that we get to administer as behavior analysts. When these assessments, especially the criterion reference assessment, so like the ABLES, the AFOLs, the BBMAP, um, these assessments, some of them have like a, you know, to score four, you have to demonstrate 200 nouns. You have to be able to label or, or select. Mm. Um, it doesn't indicate exactly what those nouns are. So when mm. the goal is independent feeding uh, and it might suggest fork or spoon, I always recommend select the utensil that is socially significant to the client. Mm. Um, to master it, it might say fork or spoon in the examples. It doesn't mean it has to be a fork or spoon. It can be chopsticks or, mm. you know, their fingers if they eat finger foods. Um, but I think a lot of that requires us as practicing behavior analysts to just write up what we've observed. So if you're submitting to a funding source and you're saying they scored a three out of four on independent feeding, well, the three meant they can use chopsticks and fingers, um, have discussed with parents, perhaps bringing in forks and spoons if appropriate, but not at this time. I think there's a lot to be said about administering these criterion reference assessments, but then again, going back to the, the crux of what we do, individualizing what we've observed to ensure that when we're reporting on what is in this assessment, this is truly what I observed and what is appropriate for this individual in front of me in this assessment. So I think there's a piece of bringing in the culture, bringing in, you know, um, I had the conversation uh, with a colleague recently where a lot of cultures don't engage in eye contact. That is not a requirement. Mm -hmm. um, that is not how they communicate with one another. So that would never be a goal of a client of mine that would come from that type of family. Right. And if greetings, um, I know in the past as a newly certified behavior analyst, greetings were hello. Hi. How's it mm -hmm. going? Well, some families um, don't even say hi. Right. They just acknowledge each other by glancing and mm -hmm. shrugging their shoulders. So, again, selecting objectives that are um, salient for the family that are socially significant. And then I always recommend making sure the families agree and approve the target selection, especially if you are. Um, bringing in a large cultural component to it. I think that's very important. So, yeah, absolutely. I love that. Um, although I don't know that, I hope when folks listen, you know, some of them will start doing this, but I, I feel like most <laughs> folks still, you know, aren't, aren't doing these sorts of things. So are, are you, is, is, sorry, is Central Reach now sort of, you said you're combining the AFOLs and the ABLES. So does Central Reach kind of, What's the term? Um, uh, like, do you do do you own these assessments now, or, or how does that work? Like, or are you just sort of working with Partington and folks? Or yep. So, so yep, you own them. So we um, we own the assessments now. Okay. Yeah. And so yeah, and so <laughs> that's and, that's the big question. I <laughs> yeah, and so if, if folks are you know. Is, is is something that we're going to see in the future, or we can, or we see now when folks are sort of purchasing these that that you know this sort of culturally sensitive um, you know administration of these assessments is that going to be kind of built into them now? Do you know what I mean? So that's not um, a part of the current, um, I, I completely understand. So we yeah. don't have them built in yet. We haven't completely updated in terms of um, mm. objectives within the assessment. When we provide training now that we own them, um, I've created an entire CEU around how to build in 
cultural components ah, into the assessment good. process. So taking the assessments where where you might build in, you know, cultural um, culturally responsive questions, where you might notate some of that, um, and then how you might shift your intake packet to inform culturally sensitive questions. Ah, very good. That's cool. That's cool. And then, how are you? Uh, what's sort of the best way to kind of um, you know train clinicians to be you know culturally responsive? It seems like we can give them lots and lots and lots of facts um, uh, and lots and lots <laughs> of ideas, uh, but um, you know how do we how do we sort of assure you know they're, they're learning these things? I think a couple ways. I think the BACB has done a fantastic job in that it's now a required CEU requirement, right? Mm. Not currently, but in the will coming be. years, it will yeah. be a requirement. Um, I think, and I, I brought this up in our uh, podcast, The Behavioral View, I think mm. we still need to figure out who is teaching this information, mm. where we're gathering the information, right? If it's a requirement of a CEU, um, who are the experts in the field that will begin administering these CEUs mm. so that we can all learn? Um I think that we can use the gold standard of training, behavior skills training. I think that, you know, supervisors should also learn about this stuff and engage in these conversations. We're going to role play this scenario. Um, I'm going to be a family who brings this situation up to you. You are the practicing clinician, How are, you know, and let's role play how you're going to respond. Um, I think, you know, and I had this thought the other day, those of us that pursue training in culturally responsive care it's a it's a passion right it there's uh there are motivational variables at play that contribute to that desire my own motivation was my own experience growing up um you know i've experienced racism in different facets i've experienced um people placing their bias on me in different ways i, I experienced it even today in 2023 which you know as a child i thought this is going to be gone by the time i'm a grown up Wow. Right. People making fun of me because my eyes are slanted or um, because my family eats rice and fish sauce. Um, I th for sure. By the time I'm in my 40s, it'll be gone. Mm -hmm. It still exists. I think as a society, we have a lot of work to do. Um, and as a field, we have a lot of work to do. But I think learning um, and being open minded to learning from all of the different people we get the I say the privilege, but, you know, our social groups shape who we are. So if you are, and, and this is something I learned in uh, my master's coursework, if you are surrounded by people who are like-minded and they're always agreeing with you, um, it might behoove you to change your so social circle to start interacting with people who disagree, right? Just mm. to learn and to have these conversations and learn how to engage in them in a way that is um, positive and supportive of your own experience and shaping. Um, I think that's one. And two, I think there's a, a lot of professionals in our field that are starting to write about this. Um, we're moving in that direction. Conferences, you know, DEI committees at different organizations mm -hmm. um, participate if you have a desire to participate. And then lastly, um, you know, other allied health professions have done this. They've tackled mm -hmm. this. Uh, there are a lot of there are a lot of literature in nursing, palliative care, oncology on um, cultural responsiveness and diversity and the requirement of these individuals to receive training in these areas. So if there is nothing in behavior analysis and those are the journals you love to read, I, I urge um, listeners to re look in other journals, look in the mm -hmm. journal of nursing and the journal of um, you know, patient health and, and see what they've done in their field. 
Very good. You you touch on a couple of a point. I agree with like you know going outside of you know just our journals for everything, like not just for cultural competence. I mean, I think there's certainly mm-hmm. you know certainly like I know Doctor Camille Kolu has really hammered in and when you're when you want to learn about trauma. It, mm-hmm. You know, behavioral analysis journals aren't the place to find the info. Um, you know, we're starting to see some stuff. I know there's a trauma-informed exactly. uh, behavior analysis <laughs> issue coming out soon. They're coming up soon um, uh, in, in behavior analysis and practice, which will be great. Uh, but, you know, a lot of other fields have been talking trauma for a lot longer than we have. And so, you know, it, it, it certainly doesn't hurt to kind of, oh, yeah. you know, check out these other groups. Thinking about sort of this you know, this, this BACB thing in 2027, it's, it's, it's interesting that, um, you know, the BACB mm-hmm. wants, and I, it's great that they want to, they're, they're going to have these sort of cultural CEUs. And I know that the QABA already has their DEI CEU and the, their recently formed IBA has their cultural CEU. Um, and, um, and, and so, you know, it, it definitely makes a lot of sense to kind of have those. I hope that, um, the BACB is, is not going to be sort of expecting that the, the folks that are teaching these or that are offering these CEUs are just BCBAs, um, because, because because as of this year, they're no longer certifying folks outside of North America, essentially, you know, with a little bit of certification mm-hmm. in the UK and Australia, which, you know, um, that's a different conversation. But, um, um, yeah. uh, you know, the, the, the fact that, you know, the, the fact is, is we're, we're now going to off, we're now going to require folks to have CEUs to learn about other cultures, but we're essentially only going to certify people from other cultures if they, live, if they live in the USA. Yeah. Um, and and so I hope that there'll be some openness to, you know, CEU providers from, from you know, other, other parts of the world. And I hope, you know, this isn't a question. This is just some, some, some yeah. soapboxing here. A statement? That, <laughs> yeah, that there might be yeah. some room to look at sort of being a, a community, uh, an approved continuing education provider, you know, from outside of the U.S., even though you can no longer be a BCBA, uh, because you know I was on, yeah, I, I sat on the uh, IBAO's professional advisory board when they first started, um, and I was with the group that kind of came up with the uh, idea of the cultural CEU, and the reason we came up with that was because. Oh. Was because a, um, um, you know, um, I think I came up with the cultural CEU. I don't know, but uh, I, but the reason is is because a, I think because it was right around again, sort of George Floyd, um, and 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 uh, and this real need to sort of, you know, start addressing biases. But b, because we were now going to start certifying people in so many nations around the world. And so it made a lot of sense in, in my mind, mm-hmm. I think in our mind, that we'd be able to provide continue, we as not myself, but that they as, as sort of these other countries certifying people, being able to educate each other on their different cultures. So if you have someone in mm-hmm. Botswana, they can tell someone in Kenya, you know, what's happening or in, in Thailand or wherever. And be able to sort of share knowledge and and sort of you know 
build sort of a, a sort of a, a bigger community kind of internationally. Um, I, I hope that um, the, the BACB is thinking about these things because there are so many great professionals around the world. I, like I would much rather talk to someone who lives in Botswana versus someone who who's grandparents lived in Botswana from yeah you know yeah um, you're gonna learn directly from the source yeah to kind of get those perspectives so you know I I I hope I hope we see that um and it makes me think about kind of um you know representation in our field um and 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 I I don't know exactly what the question is here because I I want I want to say this properly um Mm -hmm. is Most of most of our professions, most of our most of our BCBAs, our board certified folks are are white. I mean, mm-hmm. we, we we've got those stats. Mm-hmm. It's, it's it's a pretty it's like ninety two percent something like that. Um, mm-hmm. um, and so, which speaks to obviously the importance of culturally responsive care and 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 and, and culture humility and learning these pieces because we're gonna we have a lot of behavioral analysts going into homes where they don't look like oh, yeah. the folks they're serving. But I guess the question is, number one, do you think, because what I'm getting at, I guess what I'm getting, what I'm wondering is about, because because from talking to sort of folks like in these other countries, so I did an interview with uh, Adair Cardin in Senegal, we talked a lot about this, and then and in another interview with someone um, in, um, um, kind of works Who's, who's who's Arab and works with kind of those populations and and how important it was mm-hmm. for a lot of these families to have someone that looked like them come in and be their professional like how much how how much more effective things were uh especially with the with the language because they're speaking the same mm-hmm. language so she she she's from yeah. actually from Washington herself but she said you know I'm not going to get sustainability here in Senegal until I have Senegalese you know, behavior analysts, you know, that are, that are speaking the language and, um, and aware of the culture and, and, and actually have been, you know, you know, part of that culture. Um, and it's just never not going to be the same as having, you know, someone like myself coming in. Do you kind of agree with that yeah. statement, I guess? And, 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 and maybe what do we need to do to get more representation so that we can have more of that kind of happening? Do you know what I'm trying to say? And you see why I'm struggling to say it? I know, I completely know what you're trying to say. <laughs> yeah, and I think that there are a couple of ways to approach this. And I think I'm in both agreement and disagreement for a couple of reasons. Yeah. One, um, representation does matter, right? Yeah. I think as a um, a minority woman in our field, uh, you know, who has struggled in, in climbing the ladder herself, um, that I didn't see counterparts like myself in leadership positions. Yeah. So it wasn't like I looked around and said, oh, you know what? There's so many Asian American women um, holding these roles that I'm applying for. It was, you know, and even I think I shared this in a talk I gave um, that kind of uh, received a lot of credit on LinkedIn. Mm-hmm. Um, I had a supervisor early on. And so 21 years old, right? I'm young. I'm new into the field. I'm really loving behavior analysis. I'm pursuing my uh, master's. Um, and my supervisor at the time was white. She was Caucasian and she, and I was uh, teaching a little girl how to ride a bike. And I was on my hands and knees in my Converse because it's so much more comfortable to run a session in Converse, Hmm. um, pushing the pedals on her bike. And my supervisor was walking alongside next to me in her high heels. 
And she looked at me down on my knees, pushing the pedal saying, I don't know if this field is for you. I actually don't know if you're going to make it as a, like, I don't know if you should pursue behavior analysis and become a BCBA. And that moment for me was so representative of what's driven me because it's like, one, I have this woman who's standing above me as I'm on my hands and knees and she's right wearing high heels while we're teaching a child to ride a bike um, and telling me I can't make it in this field. Um, so that was, you know, that was a little bit of uh, a, an MO for me to really push through my career in yeah. ABA um, many decades ago. But going back to your original question, um, the reason I have, uh, I don't agree with that is, you know, and Connors and colleagues wrote a paper in 2019. Uh, they talked a lot about developing the cultural awareness skills of practicing behavior analysts. Mm. And what they said was, um, we need to support a wide population of individuals in getting into behavior analysis, right? Um, of all different backgrounds, whether yep. that be um, the minority backgrounds, neurodiversity, all of those individuals need access to our master's programs mm. to become practitioners. Yeah. However, Having a diverse group of practicing behavior analysts doesn't necessarily equate to more culturally responsive professionals mm. because um, we're not ever going to be able to match the number of clients that we serve with an identical or a similar background or similar experienced um, practicing behavior analyst. It's just never going to happen. Mm. But what we can do is we can ensure that every behavior analyst that is out there in that certificate registry is culturally sensitive culturally mm. responsive and culturally humble. Mm. Um, and we can do that by having requirements of, you know, skill demonstrations. You know, if this is a topic that is truly um, one that we want to stand behind, just taking a CEU is not going to be enough mm. because we can do harm if we're making assumptions and bringing in biases. We can do yeah. harm if we say I'm culturally sensitive um, and, I, and I say something wrong that does harm my client. So I agree that I think that, you know, especially in, in different countries in the nation, it's better when they speak the same language, especially if you've got a family who mm -hmm. cannot communicate in the language that you're delivering services um, or a translator that is very well versed in our, our science. Um, but I don't know if we'll ever be able to meet the needs by matching clinician to client. So I think that the best thing to do is continuing to have conversations, right? Engage in that self-awareness and self-reflection of our, your own bias and read as, and, and consume literature and listen in on podcasts, um, to understand, you know, mm. oh, wow, I didn't realize that I did this or, oh gosh, that story sounds like something I've done in my past. Or I might've said this to a supervisee. Um, I know I would never have told a supervisee that they weren't going to make it in the field. Uh, definitely not in that language. I might have said, Hey, here's some ways that I can help you become a better practitioner when you, you know, become a supervisor. Um, but for me, again, as a minority woman, having having a Caucasian supervisor stand above me and make a statement like that, it felt like I was never going to be anything in this field. Okay. Um, I don't know if she's listening today because she's no longer in this field. But <laughs> that's I where I was wondering. I'm day. not surprised. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, a, per a person in high heels standing over you is talk about, you know, Flash in the power dynamic, um, um, or trying to create one anyway. Yeah. But but the high heels versus the converse, you could you could really tell sort of who was going to be in the field the longest right there. Uh, <laughs> the second secret word is view, V I E W. Um. Yeah, no, the, just. Thinking about language for a second, because I think that's where I think that's where the, you know, 
there can be a lot of, a lot of issues um, in terms of language. Um, how does it work in the states with sort of insurance? Does insurance cover things like interpreters? It uh, currently, in my experience, it does not. Um, mm. Depending on, well, okay, I shouldn't say it that definitively. Mm. I think that as a behavior analyst, if you have a family where you do need uh, an interpreter, you'd have to reach out to the case manager mm. through the funding source. So if you're working with a specific insurance program, you yeah. might reach out and say, I have a client who has um, a need for an interpreter. Mm. And they the insurance would have to support that process. Um, I also know in my experience working in regional centers, they have a large number of interpreters available. So mm. depending on which funding source you work in, in which state you work, um, a family may or may not have access to mm. interpreters. Because I wonder about... To support, you know, services, acquisition. Right. Because I wonder about, about language. Because if you're working with a family where, you know... There's no English at all, um, you know, and or very little. Um, and so you do need a translator to come in or you need to speak the language. Mm -hmm. um, if you speak the language, great. That's, you know, certainly going to be probably the ideal. Um, but uh, but if you don't. I'm wondering if there's sort of cultural considerations for using an interpreter, because the interpreter might not be a translating things properly or the way you want it to be exactly and b they might not be culturally competent and and therefore they may be expressing your message in in not the way you want it uh, yeah i agree and i had i've had a very similar scenario in, in my mm. clinical practice in that um when i looked for an interpreter i looked for an in, looked for an interpreter that when we spoke about the case could speak about it in a way that I agreed that they were understanding what I was saying. Um, right. I didn't use my heavy behavior analytic jargon. I mm. definitely made it user-friendly um, in a way that when they spoke it back to me, I said, okay, that's exactly what I'm trying to accomplish here. And they would translate it. Now, one of the things that interpreter said to me at the time was um, the way I'm communicating it or translating the language isn't the way it's said in English. So a lot of, you know, the verb nouns are backwards. So the interpretation again is a little bit diff different anyway, because of how it's translated. Um, so I've worked with different families where recommendation included written. So if I have families where language um, is a barrier to communication, I always uh, follow up with very clear instructions via email, right? Um, because written word is a little bit easier for that for those families to digest, especially if they can read English. Um, now, I've also worked with families where we had to translate the written word into their home language. And that was also difficult because, again, like you're saying, that interpreter may not rewrite it the way that it's intended mm -hmm. to come out. So, so I think that in those scenarios, now, when we spoke just a few seconds ago, this was about um, families that probably spoke English, right? So we were, again, making the assumption that in these cultural, culturally diverse backgrounds, they all spoke English. Mm -hmm. There are going to be scenarios where your clients um, do not understand what you're saying, and you have to rely on an interpreter. And I think that is an access to care situation that we have. Mm -hmm. um, and, and, you know, I love that you're working in this international certification realm, because there are brilliant behavior analysts outside of um, the United States that, you know, can and do provide services. And I think that, again, building a community of access requires that we consider access in other languages, access mm -hmm. in other texts written in their language. Um, I think it's important. And I think 
when you're looking at interpreters, you know, I, I've seen some recommendations on social media to use the the Google interpreter. Mm. Um, I would always refrain against that as a recommendation, yeah. just because, again, the way it's translated is never truly the way it's been spoken in English. Um, mm -hmm. So always having a, a live interpreter first. And then secondly, having someone who has experience is always best. If, if mm -hmm. we had a community where we could reach out and say, I have a new family, they moved here from, you know, um, this nation is there anyone in our field who can help me mm -hmm. i mean that's that's a great great place to start i haven't seen anything like that but i imagine that's something that we need to be considering that would be an amazing company to start you know behavior analyst <laughs> translation where you know yeah. where, where folks you know maybe they're bcbas themselves or at least you know they have you know some basic understanding of the jargon rbt level or something um to be able to sort of then provide you know, behavior analytics specific consultation translation. That'd be really neat. Absolutely. I think uh, it would also be, and, and I'll do another sort of shameless plug for the IBAO here, <laughs> um, where I think I, I highly encourage, you know, BCBAs that are maybe working with families where, you know, language is a barrier, um, that there are a lot of behavior analysts around the world now that are doing a great job of translating um, kind of ABA literature. Uh, mm -hmm. I've seen the white book coming out in a few more different languages. I know, I know uh Greg Hanley's team and, and at, at FTF there have done a really good job of of getting, you know, the 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 PFA, you know, in translated into sort of multiple languages. And I believe some of the translators are folks that are also working with the IBAO board right now. Um, and so, you know, do you have, do you see a lot of folks doing that sort of thing, sort of translating their own documentation within their company? So if you work sort of in a, in a like, for example, we, in the area I live, um, um, we definitely, in, in sort of greater Vancouver area, I'm kind of a little outside of town, but there's um, uh, there's just what you say about sort of, you know, minority uh, populations becoming the majority, as it were. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I, there was a there was a point and I don't know if it's changed, but a few five or 10 years back where greater Vancouver, uh, the Caucasian population was the third highest um, before. Hmm. Um, uh, I believe it was Chinese families and East Indian mm -hmm. families. I think with East Indian and then Chinese. Um, wow. And, and so, you know, we have predominantly, so, we, so in, a, in a population of, say, I don't know, a couple million, um, there's a good chance that, you know, well over, you know, you know 1.5 million of those folks are either East Indian or Chinese. And so I've seen companies here, mine, in mine, the one I work in now, and, and a couple I've been in before, who, who who made a point of translating all of their documents into sort of into Mandarin, Cantonese, and, that's fantastic, uh, and a few different East Indian languages because that's so common. Um, at the same time, because those populations are that way, we have a lot of behavior analysts that that are you know come from come from those those backgrounds, which is which is great as well. Yep. Um, but also speaks to, I think, the piece, to your point about how everybody should be culturally aware and, and culturally competent and, and whatnot, regardless of their background, because what often happens too, I think, uh, and, and we've seen this sort of, I've, I've seen this in companies I've worked in, is that sometimes these behavior analysts get pushed into the 
sort of compartment of only working with those families yeah. that yeah. come from their background. And that's not what they want even necessarily, no. but yeah. they're pushed that way because of their language. And I think that's, you know, again, um, we see that also with, with clinicians who are highly skilled in um, behavior reduction mm-hmm. or managing severe behavior that that becomes their entire caseload. And, mm-hmm. you know, with, when we think about burnout for um, any helping profession, but burnout and behavior analysis, it's often when you match um, supervision or supervisors with cases that are, um, if, if they've said, I don't want to work with this type of case, or I, you know, this isn't filling my bucket, or can we at least spread it? So I have a couple cases like this and a couple cases that do fill my bucket. Mm. Um, I think it's important if, you know, like you're saying, you've got clinicians who are only working with this population because they speak that same language. Um, their diversity is also lacking. Their ability to mm-hmm. work in other diverse populations um, might not exist. So I think it's important to think about and ask those questions to those to those BCBAs. Because, because on that, I'm, I'm wondering what your thoughts are on, and this may be too big of a topic for right now, but I don't know. I don't know if this is what you'd call it, but sort of culturally responsive kind of OBM. So how do you sort of <laughs> you know? Um, and I, I suppose you can really apply a lot of what we you've said today, uh, but how do we sort of think about, you know, being culturally responsive when in our hiring practices and in our mm-hmm. in our internal training practices and in our internal expectations and those sorts of things? Have you thought about that or kind of come across that sort of area at all? Uh, the only experience I have in that was uh, my role at a large scale organization where we we talked a lot about you know in our hiring practices removing the name removing any background information and truly reading mm. resumes for the resume yes. so um when i was a clinical director looking to hire other bcvas all identifying information for that individual was removed except for the experience and training mm-hmm. so that we could select clinicians according to their experience um in yeah. one and then in two during supervision so you know making sure that you're meeting with these uh, if you're if you're someone overseeing numerous BCBAs, meeting with them frequently and again asking about um, their experience, talking about their experience, especially when it comes to culture. You know, mm-hmm. have have you taken courses? Have you read texts? Mm-hmm. Should we host a journal club? Should we have these conversations? One of the things I know in my last practice that we talked about was it would have been fantastic to have kind of a round robin of um, co- conversation about culture. Mm. Right. Just let me share who I am and where I come from, because Mm. that might shape how you if you encounter a family with similar experience. Um, I was uh, on a DEI committee and I know uh, there's a lot of theory on some companies shouldn't have committees. Right. Committees means you have a problem. Um, But it was a a group that had a DEI committee. And a lot of the conversations we had were how do we at large scale provide training on diversity? How do we ensure that, you know, our clinicians have access to various multiple different clients, mm. not just mm. this client. You know, like if you're scheduling your BCBAs in one region and one territory, you might be um, limiting their ability to work across different types of families. Um, you know, if you've got, and I worked in the Bay Area, so there were some regions I worked in where it was, um, the funding source was very different than another region. So I had some mm. very um, families that were very much uh, socioeconomically doing well financially. And then I had mm. some families who were not. Mm. And that disparity is also cultural. Uh, And my ability and my interactions with those families were very much shaped by their experiences. So I think um, in in an organization's practice, really thinking about, like you said, OBM, but then thinking about your clinicians and their experience and their territory and their background, having those conversations are important to making sure that we're aware um, from the top down. Mm. Mm. Yeah. 
had recognizing my own uh, bias as an interviewer, um, I know that there are questions that I'm not going to think to ask. Um, so I wonder if there's sort of anything else in terms of sort of culturally responsive care that we haven't touched on that you want to sort of add to the conversation. Gosh, that's a that's a loaded question. I can have yeah. I have so many recommendations I can make. Um, mm. You know, I think that there is a lot to consider in this space. Yeah. I think that you know we are learning and growing as a field. Um, the the last thing I'll add, and I say this often, is and you know if you're a listener, you probably have seen or heard of this um, YouTube video. But uh, Pat Fryman has a video. There's no such thing as a bad boy. Right. Uh, it's it's one that, you know, I watch it and I cry every single time, uh, depending on where I am in my career, in my work week uh, with my own stressors. But I cry out of um, joy in that mm. truly the best way to approach culturally responsive care is to have that circumstantial view that every individual and then every family right comes from a different um, circumstantial view. And the only way that we can serve them properly is to gather that information of their view, their experience and who they are without making assumptions um, based on their last name, their first name, the color of their skin, what city and state they live in, what city and state they used to live in. Mm -hmm. I think the only way we can be truly culturally responsive is by um, gathering that information from the sources themselves, which are our clients mm -hmm. and their families. Awesome. Well, I think that's a good place to, to, to wrap things up. Nissa, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. I, I learned a lot today. Was, I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. This was fun. It went quick. Nice. There is a lack of diversity when it comes to educational material depicting Black children in the field of applied behavior analysis. Human Expressions gives Black and Brown children realistic and detailed images of kids who look like them modeling everyday skills that may be difficult for them to communicate or express. At Human Expressions, the benefits of representation for black and brown kids in educational curricula are clear. Increased self-esteem, reducing stereotypes, and increased validation and support. To learn more, go to www.humanexpressions.org. That's human, H-U-E-M-A-N, expressions.org. The third secret word is... Dissertation.